Now, I told you a couple of weeks ago that this, that this letter, the book of Galatians, is probably one of the most relevant to us today. I mean, probably it's one of the most, it, it fits our circumstances the best. And the reason is, is because this culture that Paul was preaching to or writing to was dealing with, they, they were struggling with their ideas of salvation. They were being taught, uh, let, me, let me put it like this. Paul comes in and he does this. He begins to preach the message any place he sees people gathered. He goes into synagogues. He goes to places where people are gathered together. And he begins to preach the message of Jesus Christ. You are saved by faith in Jesus Christ. He died on the cross in your place for your sins. And you need to believe in this. If you don't, you're condemned. If you do, you'll have eternal life. This is the message that Paul preaches. And then these people come in afterwards and say, you know, we don't really like that message. We don't appreciate that message because what we want you to believe or what we believe is that we've got all of these traditions and all of these laws that we hold to. And we love these laws and we don't want to get them up and give, give them up because we believe that they bring us to a place where we're acceptable to God. And so we're not going to let them go. We're not going to give them up. But then Jesus came and he died. And yeah, we believe he died on the cross and we believe that he rose from the grave. But you know what? It, it, that by itself isn't enough. And so we must add him to what we already believe. And that's the way the Judaizers were approaching it. And then when they came to the Galatians, who were not Jewish people, there may have been some Jewish people scattered among them. But the bulk of them or a large part of them were Gentiles. They, they, they weren't necessarily Jewish people who had grown up with this Jewish law and tradition to follow, they come in and they say, you know what, you now have the message of Christ, yes. But that's not enough. You need to follow our law as well. You need to be circumcised. Your men need to be circumcised. You need to follow our traditions. And so the, the reality is, is that the reason I believe that's relevant to us today is because of this. In the world... There are 38,000, approximately 38,000. I mean, that's a big number. 38,000. Wrap your head around that. 38,000 Christian denominations or denominations that would claim to be Christian. That includes everybody from Eastern Orthodox to Roman Catholicism to, to uh, even the Mormons and the, and the Jehovah's Witnesses would, would claim to be in there. All the way to um, Baptist, Pentecostal, Baptocostal, you know, the guys that are mixing everything up and kind of like us, uh, doing all kind of different stuff and trying to approach things a little differently. We, we fit in there, right, with that 38,000 denominations or perspectives of church. But here's the difficulty, and here's the cold, hard truth. We can't look at all those people and assume that we can connect with them or that we can partner with them or that we are even brothers and sisters in the faith. Because in many cases, in many cases, the disagreement over one central issue separates us from them. And that's the gospel of Jesus Christ. You see, the work of Christ on the cross is sufficient there is no need for anything else. Jesus Christ, His power and His work paid the price. And that's it. And we can talk and we can discuss all kinds of things. 
We can talk about tongues and, and whether it's for today or whether it's not for today, whether it's commonplace or shouldn't be commonplace. We can talk about things uh, to do with church government and, and leadership and, and how we should structure that. We can de- deal with issues on, even, even issues on perspectives of salvation. We can talk about those things, but this one issue is a hill we must stand on and die on. You can add nothing to your salvation. That was one on the cross. And our lives, because of it, are secured not because of our traditions or the ways that we celebrate it or or the things that we do, but our lives and the hope that we have because Jesus Christ didn't remain dead, but He rose three days later and He ascended to be at the right hand of the Father and He sent His Holy Spirit to fill men like Paul that we might hear this message 2,000 years later and might come to know the truth that we are sinners saved by grace, bought by the blood of Christ. That's the message. And we can't let it go. You see, this is a struggle that we face in America today in a big way. We see it fighting and we, we see the fight all across North America in the churches as some people strive to let go of things that they don't necessarily like or don't want to cling to. They want to soften the offense of the cross. It's offensive. You and I are sinners and it hurts to hear that. And Jesus Christ died in our place for our sins and it hurts to hear that. But that is the message that has been being preached. That's the message that Paul brought to Galatia. And that's the message that Paul was fighting for and defending as he wrote this letter. You see, unfortunately, we live in a city where people every day are waking up and believing that in some way they're saved because of what they're doing. Maybe even inadvertently. Maybe you are sitting here today feeling comfortable in your salvation Not because you trust so deeply in the cross of Christ, but because of what you do on a daily and weekly basis. I I, I don't cuss. I don't go to rated R movies. I don't sleep around on my spouse. I don't do so many things that other people are doing. And I do. I, I show up at least 49 times a year to church. At least 49. I, I can remember being baptized. I can, I can, I can remember saying this prayer and and meaning it that I wanted Jesus, and, and I can remember walking that aisle and talking to that minister and meaning it in that moment. But none of those traditions and none of those rules that we follow are enough. They will lead us, or leave us empty. They will lead us astray. The centrality of the gospel, the sufficiency of the cross is what saves us. And today, as we we move into this next passage and we consider the words that Paul is going to bring through this letter, I want you to hear that again. I want you to be in the midst of that moment again where you are thinking and considering it your salvation and why you can be assured of it and why you can feel comfortable in it. Because I'm going to ask you to consider 
really what God's done in your life and what you're doing in light of it. My shoes are sticky, and so you guys are just going to have to deal with that. I'm really trying not to walk around as much as usual. Galatians 1. We're going to pick it up in verse 8. I'm kind of reaching back into these verses from last week so that we can kind of build a a foundation for where we're headed today. Galatians 1, beginning in verse 8. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, If anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. Now, let's just stop right there. As Paul's writing this letter, the the, the perspective is, at least some people hold the perspective, that one of the things that the, the Judaizers were saying about Paul was that he was a people pleaser. He was coming to these people... And, and, and telling them, you don't have to follow the law, you just have to believe in Jesus because he didn't want them to feel offended or to be bothered or even have to think about the effort that came with salvation. I want you to just think about it and hear the words again. Let him be accursed. Let him. And he he meant it so much that he said it twice. Let him be accursed. The word in English would also, another word for it would be anathema. And really, to give you an idea of what he's saying, consider the strongest curse you've heard someone say to someone else. Think about it. And the strongest curse you might have heard someone say to another person might be coming close to kind of what Paul's saying here. You see, what Paul is really saying, and we don't necessarily get it because we don't understand exactly the the, the Greek as we read it in the English, but the word means this, that they are given over to destruction. You see, what Paul wants for these false teachers, for these people who are coming in and preaching a message contrary to his, is for them to be set apart, holy unto God, For destruction. You see, when we think about holiness, we think about it oftentimes in being made holy and being set apart for a beautiful purpose for salvation. But what Paul wants here is not anything near that. In fact, what he's saying is, let them go straight to jail, not pass go, not receive $200, have no way out. The the, the tone of the word is this. Let them be destroyed with no hope of redemption. I mean, I, I think he's pretty serious. You know, honestly, may, maybe you've heard someone say to someone else, go to hell. You know, and, 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 and those words, you know, if you really think about what's behind those words, it's really, it's really tough. It's, 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 a, it's a tough saying. But as we say it, most of the time we're not thinking, I really hope you go to hell with no hope of redemption. I mean, usually we're saying, shut up or leave me alone, get out of my face. But Paul believes so deeply in his message. He believes so much in what Jesus Christ has revealed to him that he's saying that anyone who preaches in a method that's contrary or in a word that is contrary, sorry, not a method, in in the word that is contrary, 
I hope he's going to go to hell and burn forever. Now, before we read the next verses, does that sound like a people pleaser? Does that sound like a man who minces words or is not, not willing to face confrontation and deal with hard truth? I don't think so. I mean, that's big. It's tough. It's up in your face and it's hard to deal with. But he believes in what he's doing. For am I now seeking, this is verse 10, for am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Who, who, who does Paul want to say, well done, good and faithful servant? Who does Paul want to hear words of approval from? These, these, these men in Galatia? These Judaizers? Or God? For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. There are only two teams that we can belong to in life. God's team and the other one. You see, we can't even really call the other team a team. But, but in God's team, when you think about God's team, it, it, at some level, you know, we all come together and we recognize God as our team captain. We recognize him as the one with the insight and the vision and the purpose and the one we're to follow. We recognize that God, you know, I mean, he's creator. And he kind of knows everything already. And we get that and we're learning to kind of fall in step behind him. Now, that doesn't mean there's not struggles. It doesn't mean that there's not difficulties. We're still human. But the reality is, is we're all learning to come in and fall in behind our team captain and follow him in life. But this other group, the other group, they're, they're really the only thing that even unites the other group or that they have in common is that they all want their own thing. Because they're all striving to be their own little g gods. They want it their way or no way. There's only two teams and Paul's letting us see that. You see, because here's the thing, and maybe another way to say it is that there's only two options. We can stand with God or against God. There is no gray area. And I know that a lot of people like to live in this gray area. But I'm going to tell you, in verse 10, kind of, Paul, Paul kind of time, he, he removes that for us. This is one of the places where we can stand and be clear. There's no gray area. You're either going to serve God or you're going to serve man. You're either going to offend man or you're going to offend God. It doesn't give us a right to go out and live as jerks and not care about people. It doesn't mean that we can walk out into the world and just act like people don't matter. People matter enough that Jesus came and died on a cross for them. We've got to care. We've got to be generous. We've, we, we, we need to be, to be patient and gracious and merciful. But we can't live with people as the central theme of our devotion. We're either going to serve them or God. I think Paul makes it clear that he'd rather offend people than God. I don't think that we can that we could even build a case for Paul being a people pleaser. And I think we can see, especially as we continue to read in verse eleven, I think we can see why. For what I have, you know, brothers, that the gospel. For I would have you know, brothers, 
that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it. But I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. Paul points out, hey, you want to know why I'm going to fight for this? You want to know why I'm so serious about this? You want to know why I would use such strong words as let them be a curse. Let them be handed over to destruction. Do you want to know why? Because this message that I'm preaching, the message that I preached, is not man's message. It didn't originate with me. I was walking one day on the road to Damascus and a light just blinded me and something knocked me to the ground and I hear the word Saul. Saul, why do you persecute me? And Jesus Christ revealed to me the truth. And He freed me from my bondage to the law that I was living in. He shed upon me the grace that I did not deserve. And He gave me a message to preach. You see, Matt showed us last week, and and, and we're seeing it again this week, Paul is fighting for this message not because he made it up, not because it sounds good to him, but because it was God's message given to him and commanded of him to preach. You see, Paul was fighting for this because he knew it was the truth. And kind of at this point, Paul's kind of like Wikipedia. I mean, Wikipedia, think about it, it's kind of got a bad rap. I mean, think about it. it. I mean, you go to Wikipedia and you don't know what you're going to get. You, you, you go into Wikipedia and the, and the beauty of Wikipedia is this. You can search anything you want and it's probably on Wikipedia. But the problem with Wikipedia is that you or I or anyone else who doesn't know about any given topic can go and write about anything we want. I mean, simply sign in. Make an account and go in and start writing. And honestly, it doesn't even have to be right. But that said, Wikipedia is not altogether bad either. Because the beauty of Wikipedia is this, that if you read and look for the footnotes and verify the sources, you can actually find a very good resource. You see, Wikipedia actually assembles a lot of information when it's done well. And it leads you to the original sources with great, uh, with, with great um, ease. All of it's bound up in this one site. I, I mean, you can search anything from the Bible to, I don't know, back pimples. I'm sure are on there. You know, it's the reality of it. I, I pulled that one out of here. <laughs> Sorry about that. Kind of break up the seriousness of the moment. I don't know if that's really there. Somebody ought to search it and try. But the reality is, is, is everything's there, but it's only as good as the source material, right? Right now, Paul's footnote is God. Paul's footnote is God. His source, the, the place where he's drawing his material, the place where he's preaching from, happens to be the guy that created the world. Happens to be the one that wrote the rule book. Happens to be the one that gets to say how things go. I mean, you think about it. From, From where the waters are to the fact that gravity keeps you on the ground, God made it all possible. 
And that's Paul's source. Who's going to argue with him? Who could stand against him? I mean, who has, who has an ability to speak against God? No one, really. The truth is, people do it all the time. The Judaizers were doing it. They were coming in and they were adding to the gospel. And they, and they were adding to this message that God had sent Paul to preach. But he's telling them, it's a lie. Don't buy into it. It's a lie. And here's why. Because I didn't go to any man. I didn't learn this or hear it from any man. Jesus Christ came to me and told me personally, this is the gospel. The very gospel he had preached to them previously. The very gospel that he was now defending. I mean, if you think about it, I mean, really think about it. Who's going to think up a message like this? Who's going to think up a message in in which we are the villains and and really the helpless? We're the ones at fault. We're the ones responsible. The, the, The reason that everything's gone wrong is our fault. God creates in harmony. He puts it all together in order and harmony and He gives this man and woman a test, an opportunity to do the right thing Or the wrong thing. And Adam and Eve ate that fruit and rebelled against God and cursed everyone in doing that. The curse fell on all of their children. God knew it. He had known it since before He said, let there be light. He knew that it was going to happen. He wasn't surprised. His plan, the Bible teaches us, was already in place. Jesus already knew that He would be coming one day and putting on flesh and dwelling among us. He knew that He would go out and He would perform great miracles, that He would teach with great authority. He knew that many people would come to hear Him and see Him. He knew that in the beginning it would appear as if they loved Him. But he knew that as his teaching got more direct and the gospel called them away from their own traditions and their own perspectives and trusting in him alone, that they would grow to hate him. And that they would kill him. But he also knew that in that death, that he would bring the sins of his people to the cross and he would nail them there. Never to be held against us again. Jesus knew that that death had to happen. And he knew that three days later he would secure it all with his resurrection and he would bring victory over death for those people that he would call to salvation. See, he knew that this had to happen because he knew we couldn't do it ourselves. Who would make up a story like that, that we become so dependent on someone else to be saved, that we are the villains, that we are the fallen. Who would think of something like that? And so we like the stories that make us look a little better or that don't place us at the center of the problem. I'm really good enough. You know, I'm not a bad person. Look at me compared to so many other people. When I stand before God, He'll recognize my goodness. And He'll let me in those pearly gates. Or how about all roads of enlightenment lead to God? 
There's really no difference between the Muslim God and the Jewish God and, and, the, and Buddhism and Hinduism. There, there's no difference between any of that and Christianity. It all leads to this understanding of higher power. That's a lie. But it makes us feel better, doesn't it? Wouldn't that be an easier story to tell? How about one that's been recent? God's really not angry at you. God, God doesn't really have anger or wrath for anyone in the world. A loving God would never send anyone to hell. Everyone In the end, everyone's going to be saved. And I, I, I love that story. Because the people that I think about in my family that I love dearly, that may or may not be believers. Man. That means that it wouldn't matter. The people that live in our neighborhood that I pray for as I drive through it. People I know are hurting. I don't, I don't know many of them. I don't know where many of them stand in their walk, but I know. I know because it's a common problem in the world. I know that there are people that are hurting and have no hope and no place to look. And wouldn't it be great if we could just tell people, don't worry about it. In the end, it doesn't matter. God's going to bring you to heaven. The story of the cross is this. God's grace is real. His wrath is real. His love is real. Without it, without the cross, there is no hope. You might as well be a false teacher. Because without the cross, and a call to the cross and faith in response to that call, there is no hope. And Really, in these next verses, we get to see that kind of begin to play itself out in Paul's life. It says in verse 13, as he calls back to his past, For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. You hear that? I mean, this, Paul, Paul's a guy, he, he, he's either all or nothing. He doesn't do anything halfway. He believed and was so sold to the traditions of his fathers. And he believed so deeply that the way, the followers of the way, that's the earliest name for the church. He believed that they were wrong and that that message was wrong and that they were leading people astray. And he believed in that moment and in that place in his life, he believed that they should be destroyed. So he set out to do it. For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. You see, Paul was a rock star. He was, he was, he was exceeding expectations. He was so sold to this view. So sold to the law and the traditions of his fathers that he spent his life studying it and eating it up. And he began to rise in fame. Paul was kind of like the Mark Driscoll of his day. 
I mean, in Judaism. Mark Driscoll's obviously not a Jew, and if you don't know him, you can go look him up. But he, he, he rose up. I mean, one day Mark Driscoll wasn't known, and then within just a, few, just a few short months, people started hearing about him all over the place. And he fought and struggled with his own issues, and he rose up out of that and became, became what's to be known as one of the most influential pastors in America. He's made a big difference in my life as I've looked and seen how God's used him and called him to, to call other men to stand up and, and preach the gospel. But Paul was that, was that counterculture, or not necessarily counterculture, but he was that guy that, that everybody was looking at. He was the next big thing. He was young and he was surpassing all of his, all of his people that, that were his age and even older. And he was just exceeding expectations. And this was his life. And he loved every minute of it. And he believed in it so deeply he was willing to see people die as they opposed it. And I love this next verse. But. But. I mean, think about this. But. This is where I was going. This is where I was headed. But. When he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by His grace, was pleased to reveal His Son to me in order that I might preach Him among the Gentiles. I did not immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me. But I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. You see, that day on that road to Damascus, Paul had a but God moment. He was headed there. To destroy the church. He was violently persecuting them and seeking to destroy them. But God showed up and showed him the truth and called him to turn around and go a different way. Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Why are you opposing me? Why are you standing against me? You say you love me. You, you act as if you love me. But everything you're doing is in opposition to me. You're killing and destroying my people. And by doing that, you are persecuting me. But God showed up. You know, here's the deal. Paul had this huge but God moment. Paul had this big but God moment. Every Christian should have this but God moment. I was going that direction, but God stepped in and showed me the truth. I was sold out to my own life. You heard two testimonies this morning in the waters of baptism. You heard them say, this is who I was. But God came and this is who I am. Paul had this huge but God moment. I mean, it, it was big. I mean, you consider this was huge. It was, I mean, it was epic. Not all of us have those huge but God moments in one moment in time. You know, I, I shared a couple weeks ago, I had a big one in church. I walked in church one way and I walked out of that building a totally different way. I walked in church a selfish, 
I was a hater, really. I didn't love anyone but myself, and I used them for my own purposes. And as long as I felt good about it, I didn't care. In fact, I prided myself. I prided myself on having no conscience and being able to use people however I saw fit and not care about them in the least. I walked into that church that day one way, but God showed up. And he opened my eyes to the truth and he called me a sinner to my face. And he offended me. And then he handed me his grace. And he said, because of what my son has done, you can be righteous. Believe in him. And in that moment, I knew. Man, I knew. There was no other choice for me. There was nothing else I wanted. It was as if he had just laid the most luscious filet mignon on a plate in front of me and I wanted to gobble it up. I wanted to enjoy every morsel. I wanted it more than anything. And when I walked out of that door that day, when I walked out of that church that day, my but God moment had made me a different person. And as I tried to treat people the way I had, the Holy Spirit would convict me. You can't do that. How have I loved you? How have I forgiven you? With what grace and mercy have I treated you? And every person sitting in this room, every person sitting in this room who claims to be a Christian, who's sitting comfortable in their salvation, should throw away the traditions, not that they're altogether bad. And should remove from their minds the things that they can do and the things that they don't do. And recognize this. You are safe in salvation because at a moment in time, God showed up. And as you headed your way, He called you to come His way. And the truth is, as He sanctifies us, as He removes the sin and selfishness and, the, and the, the weakness of who we are in our flesh, that, that process by, by which He works us out of ourselves, where we become less and He becomes more, as He does that, we should be finding all kind of but God moments all along the way. I used to struggle with porn. But God delivered me. I used to get angry quite a bit. But God delivered me. I still struggle with selfish and mixed motivations. But God is showing me and helping me overcome. Let me just ask you, what's your but God moment? When you walked in the doors of the school, when you, when you sat and watched the baptism, when you came back in and sat and sang the songs, was that, 
Was that the offering that you have to offer up to God? Is that the security and comfort you have in salvation? The very fact that you woke up and came to assemble with the church today, is that what you have to offer up and say, God, look at what I've done. Look at what I have to offer When you go to work tomorrow, are you going to be a good employee and strive to do everything right and be nice to your co-workers? Is that what you're going to offer up to God? But God, look at what I've done. Are you going to recognize that a moment in a time God confronted you with your sin? And called you to grace. You know, the beauty of this passage is as as Paul is saying it, he recognizes that that God didn't just come to know him on the Damascus Road. But he who called me by his grace from the time I was from from I've messed it up. I better read it. That's what happens. But when he who had set me apart before I was born. God always knew, Paul. The truth is, today, if you're sitting here and you've had that but God moment, he always knew you. And he allowed those things in your life and he he saw them leading you astray and he saw them leading you on the wrong path. But God showed up and showed you the truth. Brothers and sisters, cling to that as you stand before God and long to hear His words, well done, good and faithful servant. It's by the blood of Jesus that you have been bought and paid for and freed from the bondage of sin. What's your but God moment? In closing, Let's just think of those. Consider them. Consider what God's done in your life. Consider how He has called you. Consider what He has done in you and how you will respond. Consider the but God moments that should be happening all along the way as He sanctifies you and grows you in maturity. Consider Maybe even today you're sitting here and you've believed all your life, but you believed in your good works and the traditions that you follow and the things you do and don't do. Consider today might be your but God moment when God shows up and He shows you your sin. He calls you to faith and repentance. How will you respond in that but God moment? moment. Maybe he's striving, or not striving, but working your life to reveal the sin to you that you're struggling with and and how it's destroying you. How it's causing unrest and, and difficulty in your life. He's calling you to something different. How will you respond in that but God moment? Paul got up and he was so confident in what God had done in him He didn't go off and check his facts. 
But in Acts, it tells us he began to preach the gospel. Here we see that he went off into Arabia. We don't know exactly what he was doing. We don't know exactly what he was, what he was doing or how long he was doing it. But I think we can imply that, that we can infer from the from the story that, that the book of Acts tells us that he immediately began to preach the gospel. I believe that's what he went into Arabia to do, to share the message of Jesus Christ and the hope of salvation that comes from it. How will you respond? It's been my prayer. Honestly, I woke up at 4.30 this morning and this was the message that was laid on my heart. I was going to talk about freedom today. I, I, I woke up, I was wide awake. So I can't say this is the prayer I've prayed all week. because Honestly, it wasn't. But since 4.30 this morning, what God has laid on my heart is this, that every person in this room, not just remember the but God moment that happened when they were six or seven, but that God would show up here and show you how he's continuing to work in your life and call you to respond in accordance with it. What are you going to do today? Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for your good grace and for your mercy, for the message of the cross and the power that comes from it. Father, we thank you that you did not leave us to fend for ourselves, but that you sent your son to save us. May you embolden us with your word. May you strengthen us for the course ahead. May you, may, may, may you give us wisdom and discernment to follow you well. Father, will you show up and call us to follow you, to confront us and offend us with our sin, that we might see the ugliness of it, the filthiness of it, in comparison to the beauty of your glory, that we might be able to run to you and to consider everything else a loss, to, con to consider everything else rubbish compared to the beauty and the awe of knowing your Son as our Lord and Savior and knowing you as our Creator and Heavenly Father. Father, confront us now and call us to a response. It's all these things I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.